welcome to the Bro Nova Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Okay, and we are recording. Welcome along, everybody. It's another Thursday, another episode of the Bro Nova Podcast. This week, I'm here with Ken Good. He is a attorney uh, currently residing in the state of Texas, um, and he's a professional bondsman. And he works closely with lawmakers and law enforcement on bail matters, and is also a policy advisor um, in this realm of criminal justice and uh, all matters around bail. So, welcome to long to the podcast, Ken. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I would say I wish I was a bondsman. I'm, I'm just a lowly bondsman's attorney. Uh, I represent bondsmen across uh, okay. the state. I represent several insurance companies in Texas. Okay, so what's the distinction there between those two uh, lines of work? Oh, they're very similar. Uh, I, I help bondsmen get licensed. And then I help them when they have issues, and I represent them when they have uh, a legal issue, legal matters. Okay. So for those who don't understand what happens after someone gets arrested, um, where does a bondsman come in, and what function does that uh, that type of person uh, perform or fulfill? Well, I... You know, I think the easiest way to, to think of a bondsman is uh, the bonding industry is the grease that keeps the conveyor belt of the criminal justice system moving. If you think about our largest areas, our metropolitan areas, we arrest on average the same number of people every year in and out. And so anything that gets you through the criminal justice system quicker is going to allow the courts to resolve more cases and conversely, anything that slows it down is going to cause a backlog. So bondsmen get people out of jail. They supervise them. They have them report. They also remind them of their court appearances. So we have the lowest failure to appear rate of any release mechanism, which means people go to court more frequently, which allows the, the cases to get resolved quicker, which allows victims to get justice. And especially post-COVID, it's going to allow backlogs to be decreased. And so so that's the reason why I use the analogy. We're the grease that keeps the conveyor belt moving. Because like in Harris County, every every month or no, every week, they're arresting around 5,000 misdemeanor cases. And so they've been using a little experiment about not using bondsmen. And they're using, they're calling it criminal justice reform. And as a result, they have now... Uh, very use bondsmen very little, and what do you know? What's happened? Their backlog has gone up 176 percent. They're now having uh, their case, uh, their system is close to collapse. And so, what are they doing? They're dismissing 72 percent of the misdemeanor cases last year and the year before, and that's how they're preventing collapse. It's just they're dismissing everything. So, who does that hurt? Hurts public safety and hurts victims because they don't get closure. Interesting. What are the types of crimes categorized as a misdemeanor in this situation where these cases are being dismissed? Well, I would say, I mean, it's, it's you know, 
this is not my number. This is just an analysis of what they're reporting to the state of Texas from Harris County. So uh, 70, well, as 10 years ago, they were dismissing only 25% of the cases. Now it's 72%. Uh, it's across the spectrum. It's all cases. Uh, it's probably uh, everything but the worst of the worst, and maybe even some of that, because that you'll find that if you have the worst of the worst also have felony cases, and so part of the deal on the felony is they'll plead to the felony and they'll dismiss the misdemeanor. So I, I, I would not, I, I, I would change that. I don't think it's... It's, I think it's across the spectrum, including the worst of the worst, uh, because they just don't have time. They have too many cases, and people uh, are playing the system. They know they don't. There's no penalty in Harris County for not showing up for court, and so you know, and I know, if career criminals get a green light, they see that as a green light, and they don't have a moral compass like you and I, and so they'll just see that as to, hey, we can go commit more crime, and that's what they're doing. Interesting. So, okay, so Harris County is the county within which Houston yes, yes. resides? And, you know, the reason why I use that as an okay. example, five or four or five, six years ago, they were sued in federal court. They were sued uh, because one of the commissioners invited an attorney to come to town to sue their uh, criminal justice system. And they used that as the mechanism to implement a lot of reforms that were going on across the country. Uh, they were attacking the way they were releasing. Now, the judges were winning in court. But uh, the county wanted a change, and so and there was uh, even though the judges were winning at the Fifth Circuit, uh, there was an election. All new judges were voted in uh, with the criticism that they'd spent eight million dollars in legal fees. Well, so they settled. They gave the plaintiffs everything they wanted. So uh, they essentially got rid of a, a, a misdemeanor uh, bail with surety bonds and replaced it with uh, uh, just a free bond uh, where you just you never even see a judge. You just get released on a $100 PR bond. And uh, they did it through a settlement. We objected to the settlement on the grounds that it even violated some of the rulings of the Fifth Circuit. And the judge said, well, hey, I may not have been able to give it to them, but they, they can saddle and agree to it. And so that's how they implemented these reforms uh, in, in just one county in Texas. Uh, but they've gone to like Ohio and argued that that should be the model for for uh, their whole state in this last legislative session. And, and that's probably one of the problems that we have is we just have a problem with we can't even agree on what's working or not. You know, you've got judges that agree it's not working. You have law enforcement agree it's not working. You have now you have you know commissioners agree it's not working. They just say it's not because of the reform. It's because of other reasons. So we can't. We can't even agree uh, that the reforms are the are the cause of increasing crime. So we just so we have to fight. I mean, you just fight everything. I mean, you fight on the law. You fight everything. It's just a disingenuous argument. We can't even agree on on just simple facts. Uh, but we do finally now agree crimes increasing. We agree that. Uh, I mean, the district attorney, who's a Democrat, released a report saying it's a result of bail reform. We have a, a monitor who issues, issues report every six months saying it's working great. The uh, police officers union just issued a report saying, let's look at the real facts, and it's failing, it's close to collapse. And so we, if when we can't agree, when we have a, a county employee who's entitled to monitor saying it's working great, you have the DA and the police officers union saying it's an abject failure. I mean, how can we even evaluate a system uh, effectively? 
Uh, the only thing we know is crime's increasing, but we can't agree as to what. And when we have a monitor saying that it's working great every six months, then it's kind of hard to uh, go back and evaluate what you've done. And that's where we are. Okay, so just to clarify, when you're saying we agree it's not working, it is the the whole thing. So the rate of people defaulting on bail, or defaulting is the wrong word, but when you say it's not working, what is what is it? In that, this that's scenario? a really good question, and I think that kind of goes back to the whole point of, of how we release people, and especially in our big urban areas. You know, you know, if we if we've got five thousand people being arrested every week on average, you've got a problem. How do you process them through the jail? How do you determine who the dangerous people are? How do you determine uh, who should have who should stay in jail? And and that's the problem that we're having. And that's the problem we're having across the country. Um, historically, Harris County has used something called bail schedules. And the people that could afford it would post the bail schedule, and they would skip magistration, and they would go to their first arraignment. But Harris County and their settlement didn't decided they didn't like that, just like New York decided they didn't want to do that, just like California decided they didn't want to do that. So New York tried something called simple release, which is what Harris County is currently doing for misdemeanors. So so we've replaced a bail schedule with simple release. And under simple release, if you're charged with any misdemeanor except maybe seven charges, you never see a magistrate. You're released on a PR bond for $100. So nobody's looking at your criminal history. There's no gatekeeper. If you, and it doesn't matter how many times you commit that crime. And same thing in it was the same thing in New York. You were ordered to be released without bond. And but in New York, they finally admitted that it's not working. They've now re, uh, pulled back at least twice on the reforms, and pro, and may pull back again after the next election. But in in um, in Harris County, we just have entrenched politicians. Who just will not agree that uh, the crim- that the bail reform that done the simple release is is a failure? The legislature in Texas even stepped in and required a review of criminal history before the bond is being set, and Harris County is ignoring that. I mean, that went into effect April one, and so when we have a recalcitrant county elected officials who just can't admit something's not working, I don't know how you work together to find a solution. Uh, and that's kind of the problem. I, uh, that's the problem we're seeing in different places. We we can't agree that something's working. We can't evaluate it uh, uh, with a clear hindsight. And where everything's being looked at through a political spectrum. And if you're on one side, you have to support something. And if you're on the other, then you have to oppose it. And we have to get away from that. And we have to find systems that work. The reality is the reason why the bail industry's been around for 200 years is, I mean, it's not like... We don't want to uh, replace the bond industry. There's just nothing that does as good a job to replace it with. Simple release has failed. It's failed New York. It's failed California. It's failed. It's failing in Harris County. That's not the that's not the replacement. And so until there's an effective replacement that has a comparable failure to appear rate, you need to keep dancing with the devil of the bail industry, which I don't consider a bit devil. I think it does a great job. But uh, but if you're even on the other side, you should say, look, we don't have anything to replace it with. We need to keep going with what works instead of replacing it with just something that makes the system completely worse. And I can't remember what your question was. What is, what is, your, uh, what is this? It's the mechanism of release. And the mechanism of release that we're 
that we're trying, that we're doing pilot projects against for against all the way across the country is simple release, and it's not working. And everywhere it's been tried, it's been a failure, and we need to admit that and get rid of that. And if that means you have to go back to using more of the bail industry, well, at least that works. I mean, replacing it with something that's an abject failure is just, um, uh, I'm, it's just ridiculous. It's not useful. Yeah, it's interesting, man. It's kind of like where the rubber meets the road on a lot of progressive ideals and taking something of good intention or of good spirit and then applying it to a system that's already entrenched. So it seems to be that the gold standard is the failure to appear rate, uh, which means that it is better for society for individuals to appear at their court dates. If I'm following the logic. Well, we want, yeah. Um, so why is well, that? Well, if somebody does not appear yet. for court, their case has to be put on hold until they come back to court. Uh, there was a judge in my home county who did a, her own little study, and she said for eight weeks of, of her using PR bonds, she created a whole new week's worth of work for her court, and it was because of the failure to appear it. If somebody doesn't show, they issue a warrant, their case puts on hold till they're arrested. That's one of the things that Harris County has come up with this really great idea. They said, well, we'll just not require people to come to court. And so we're waiving appearances. So like right now in the misdemeanor courts, they have like a 15.9% appearance rate because they're waiving so many appearances. But of the people that they are requiring uh, that they don't waive, they still have a 75 point something, a 76% failure to appear rate. And, you know, if they don't come, you can't get their case over. I mean, it's you know, we have the constitutional requirements that you have to uh, confront them. They have to be in court. I mean, the only time you can uh, try them in abstention is if the trial starts with them there and then they run in Texas. So, it's you know, we can't resolve their case if they don't come to court. And the higher the failure to appear rate, the more often you're going to have to... Uh, Put their case on hold, which is going to create more backlog. Uh, any, and you know that's a big problem right now. We've got huge problems of backlogs across the country as as a, as a result of COVID. And that was even before COVID too. Yeah, right? I mean, I just as populations increase, you're going to, if your percentage of crime is going to go up because your populations increase because the pop, you know percentage of crime is usually the same. And then I think probably with COVID or or with um, a, downturns in the economy, you probably have upticks in crime, but I mean, by and large, the problem that we have with policies that are being put in place is uh, they're, they're mean, even if you want to say they're well-intended, and I don't know if I would agree completely that they're well-intended, but if you say, okay, these are well-intended policies, well, they're tying the hands of judges so they can't address career criminals, uh, organized crime, or gang members. Because their hands are tied, they can't they can't do any you know they're having to treat them the same way as the first offenders. And I don't think that our friends on the other side intended that, uh, and they're not put, uh, putting in safeguards or they're not giving the judges enough discretion so that they can address those problem areas. And I think that's where you're seeing crime being uh, uh, going up, and you're starting to see a backlash. You're starting to see the public say, "Well, we." We should just be holding more people in jail 
and you know we can't afford to do that. I mean, we we have to find some middle ground. But it looks like the pendulum is starting to swing the opposite direction, and, and the p- call is we need to put more people in jail, and we need to hold them in jail even pre-trial because they're dangerous and they're not they're not going to court. Yeah, it's, that's that's really interesting. So, of the reformers or those seeking a change to the status quo, what are, in your opinion, the most valid criticisms of the status quo and where do you think that kind of compromise is that you're alluding to? Well, you know, I think bail reform is one of those very few issues that I don't know if there is a a compromise because the the two sides are so far, far apart. There's no middle ground. It's all or nothing. I mean, look at um, you know the proposal in California is where you know that was that that the legislature passed it and there was a petition drive and then it, uh, the elect the voters voted against it with a large proposal just to get rid of the bail industry and then you've got New York where you're just releasing people uh, on their own recognizance uh, for certain crimes no matter how many times they've been charged with it and so I mean if you would look at our our friends on the left like in Harris County if they had done the reforms they had proposed. And and then held people accountable. So, okay, you had your chance, and you didn't show up for court. Okay, we give you two chances. You didn't show up for court. So now we're going to hold you, or we're going to, uh, we're going to now go back to a pretty, uh, a pretty good system of accountability. That's where we've had the complete breakdown, is we had a breakdown in accountability. And you see that everywhere. Uh, accountability on... on Crime, accountability on going to court, accountability on uh, on punishment on crime. I mean, you're losing all accountability if if seventy-two uh, percent of people of cases are being dismissed. You have a, you have complete loss of accountability if people miss court and they don't and they have no no uh, no punishment for it. And then that filters all the way down to crimes. I mean, in Harris County, with everything going on, they have thirty fewer misdemeanor charges being filed. And it's because the, the police officers see what's going on. Why would you file a low-level misdemeanor if you know it's got a 72% chance of, of being dismissed? So the only crimes that are really being charged for misdemeanors are really bad misdemeanors. And that's where crime, uh, the, the numbers of filings of cases are going up. So if we were looking for a middle ground, I, I don't know if there is one right now. Because I, I really think the problem is that we... Uh, We've gone too far the other direction. And any level of accountability will require more people to be held in jail. And that's completely contrary to the narrative that we're hearing on one side of the spectrum. Um, we've gone through years and years of releasing criminals. Uh, uh, California reducing the population of the jail just by a sheer number. You have to release this many people. And at a certain point, I think what we're finding when you release criminals, crime will go up. And now we're saying, we're, we've got DAs who say, hey, I'm not going to prosecute certain crimes. And, uh, and so then you see people taking advantage of that. And so I think that now we're seeing it just permeate the criminal justice system. And then we have Harris County DA issuing a report saying that the, the bail reforms for misdemeanor cases is increasing crime. And so it's a multifaceted problem. We have one side of the spectrum that just think that's because of equity we need to do certain things, don't care. I mean, you would argue that that, um, 
that they're saying they don't care whether crime goes up, but they do. They're, the, I mean, I think that the issue of criminal justice is one of the top three issues this election cycle. Probably it would have been higher, but inflation is going to be number one by the time we get to the election. Uh, we'll probably be in a recession by the time we get to the election. So those will take over the first two positions. But I think feeling safe o- overcomes identity politics. I don't care whether you're white, red, brown, brown, polka dot, or whatever. If you don't feel safe, you don't feel safe. I don't care what your sexual identity is if you don't feel safe. And I think we're going to be we're going to see people voting to be safe in the in the upcoming election and uh, or stay home. I think we're going to see a lot of people from the left stay home because they're going to feel like they haven't received anything in the last election and they're going to they're going to blame instead of voting for it, they're just going to stay home, which is going to be uh, which is going to make the result even more um, more of a big impact mm. yeah the the criticisms that I, as i understand it of the traditional bail system are that essentially people of means who have money can get out and then people who don't have money to post the bail have to sit in jail not prison but i guess awaiting a hearing yeah but let me let me uh, respond to that let me respond the, to that argument directly though yeah. because if that is your True argument, and we agree that in our urban areas, you know, we can't magistrate everybody, or your county does not have the resources to magistrate everybody. You want to divert as many people away from magistration as you can so that the judges have the discretion to focus on the people who are poor, and so they can determine, hey, okay, you don't have a criminal record, we need to get you out. Oh, you have a criminal record. Oh, you have a substantial criminal record, so you have a risk to public safety. The systems that we're setting up are, are the opposite. Well, we have to treat everybody the same, and we sure as hell can't match for everybody, so we just have to release everybody. Well, that's making the proposition worse. And so the when you say, well, that's the criticism, well, what's the solution for that? The I think the, the traditional solution is we divert people with means away from magistration so that the magistrates have the discretion or the time to exercise their discretion and do a good job of it. I think they do now. I don't think we have any first-time offenders stuck in jail that have a job. I don't I don't think we have any first-time offenders stuck in jail at all now, especially not in Harris County on misdemeanor because they're released automatically. But I don't think we do in, across the country. I think that's a talking point and it's it's and I think that's long ago been addressed. But what but by making that argument, that's one of those examples where the solution ties the hands of the judge or makes it so they have no time to focus on. I mean, they're just, you know, if you have to magistrate everybody, you have two minutes or a minute to determine all these things. If you can divert people away, then you've got more time. And so when we're saying, well, it's uh, people with means can get out. Well, yeah, that's the county, the system they've set up. And we need them to be diverted so that the magistrates can truly focus on poor people to see who needs to be released. Yeah, that's that's interesting as well. Um, it seems to me that it's a processing, a data, literally a data processing uh, bottleneck, right? So if the if the real core crux of the issue is evaluating people's criminal history, their risk to society, their flight risk, a number of um, risk ass- assessments, I suppose, and if it, all this is hinging on magistrates who are 
appointed by the courts? Are they are they judges themselves? Yeah. Um, I, so if these people are, it, it seems like there's a limited number of people who have the permission, skills, and authority to do this filtration. If we could have more of those people who we trust and certify some way, then that could kind of relieve the uh, bottleneck, if I'm understanding correctly. Well, you know, in our magistration is a verb; it's not really a noun. Um, and who can magistrate? You know, in Texas, anyone can magistrate from the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Texas all the way down to the mayor of a city. Any one of those people can magistrate. Uh, in our smaller counties, the JPs, justices of the peace, do the primary magistration, or they're the primary people who issue uh, do the initial magistration. But in our or or the courts themselves, the judges of the courts. But in our larger cities, we've created this subcategory of judges we call the magistrates. We now make that a noun. And there are people that are hired by the county, and that's all they do is magistrate people who've been arrested. And that's really the, the issue in our large urban areas is, is how do we magistrate these people quickly. And they have decided to hire a group of magistrates. Um, but we only have so many criminal justice dollars. Do we want to spend all, you know, 50% of our criminal justice dollars on the beginning, just on the act of magistration. Um, <clears throat> the problem we have, we have competing forces here. We have the courts saying if someone's claiming poverty, they have a right to an individual hearing. But then you have, you know, uh, think tanks that say, oh, we can just do a risk assessment and it can be automated and it can really be the same as uh, it can be push button and that'll take the place of, of uh, magistration. And it's, it's never been done. I mean, it's not been done anywhere where it takes the place of magistration. And anytime you have, uh, I'm not a very big fan of the risk assessment tool. I, I'm a big fan of just giving judges more discretion and diverting people away so they can focus on people. Uh, and then, you know, the people that, even the ones that are diverted at their initial appearance, the judge can look at them and say, okay, you have a substantial criminal history. I mean, we just got to get people to court. This whole argument that, you know, we first said we got to get rid of the bail system or the uh, bail industry because it's not constitutional. Well, we've had two courts hold it's constitutional. Now we're stuck in this fairness argument. Uh, I mean, I would say, you know, life's not fair. But we have the fairest criminal justice system in the world. But to say fairness means we have to treat everybody the same is really just an argument that we want chaos because we don't have the resources to treat everybody the same. We don't have the resources to magistrate 5,000 people a week. We have to figure out some way in Harris County to divert people away. And right now, like Texas, they've given the, them two choices, individual magistration or a bail schedule, and they're not following either one, they're ignoring the law, and they're just releasing people without ever seeing a judge for misdemeanors. And there's going to be a problem with that. There's going to be a, 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 a conflict at the legislature on that because they're going to want more judges, but they're, not going to, but they're not following the law. And so I see a crisis coming. And in the meantime, they're deciding to blame the bail industry for increasing crime, which is the ultimate irony. You're using the bail industry less and less. Crime is going up, and so it's still the bondsman's fault. We're always the easy target. So we're being blamed when, when there was substantially less crime, and we're being blamed now that there's substantially more crime, but you're using us less and less. 
I hope you're enjoying this week's episode of the Bronovo podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it and bringing it to you. If you have not already, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating. Stick around for after this conversation where I'll be giving my reflections on the discussion and what we learned. I'd love to hear from you as well. Send me an email, thomas at bronouveau.com or find me on Instagram at bronouveaupod. Enjoy. Yeah, it seems to me that the a core kind of difference in perspective is in this um, whole idea of, of policing tactics or, or who's being charged with crimes, for example, right? Because the narrative is that, say, for example, with the war on drugs and that um, poor black people in cities were disproportionately um, affected by that because... Uh, having crack cocaine was a, a felony or a category three, I believe it's called, uh, which had much longer prison terms and then spiraling effects on generations of families where the, like their rich counterparts who had powder cocaine uh, were not seeing the same. So, and again, I completely acknowledge I'm not in the weeds like this, you know, and you are, this is just what I've heard through osmosis, right? Kind of in, in life. Um, no, let's let's take so, this more clear. This, the, the argument is that we are yeah. incarcerating black and brown at a much higher rate than we are whites, and that that's a, 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 a sign of systemic racism in our criminal justice system. And I categorically disagree with that. But what you did say that I do agree with 100% is that we have an urban city problem. We have an urban city crime problem. And, you know, we have places where we have have high concentrations of people and we have high concentrations of poor people and anyone that can afford to has moved out of those areas and so there's a high concentration of minorities in those areas. But the problem in those areas is schools have failed, families have failed, uh, we have high dropout rates, we have families without fathers, we have um, uh, industries that no no business opportunities and we have high drug problems. And so we have high gang problems in those areas as well. I mean, we had, I, I spoke to a sheriff recently. He said that in the, the third largest jail in uh, Texas has shared, the people there share three common factors. One, they don't have a father in the house. Number two, they don't have an education. And number three, there's some outside influence like drugs or gangs. And so, I mean, those are the, that is the inner city problem. Uh, and so we have crime that's running rampant in our inner cities, and there's also a disproportionate uh, percentage of minorities in our inner cities. I don't believe we have a racist system. I believe we have an inner city criminal uh, crime problem, and those areas are being run by the very party that's pushing these. And I'm cynical enough to say, look, what you're really saying is we should, we've given up on schools there, we've given up on families there, we've given up on business opportunities there, we've given up on them. So now we have to give up on criminal justice? I mean, just give them a pass. I mean, it's like we're saying, I mean, criminal justice, is there one final chance to turn around and we're going to give up on that? I, I, I categorically just disagree with that. We don't have a racism problem. We have an inner city problem that people have allowed to fester and become this, this thing that it is currently. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that having parents, having a father, very useful, very uh, transformative in one's outcome and trajectory in life, having good education. Um, I think the thing that where I kind of want to pump the brakes is just, it's almost like a um, generalizing people in these situations as, you know, blaming them for where they are. And I guess if we think about, again, like the war on drugs example, I don't know what percentage of, if you looked at say every uh, single parent household in the 50 most concentrated uh, densely populated areas in the country of those single family households, how many of those individuals are single family households because of the war on drugs? I don't know what that number is. Maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 70%. But, but I guess the difference is like, if we're just going to discount that and not acknowledge that, then I think that's where um, people who do want to ha- see change will maybe hesitate to agree with that line of thinking. The other thing that I really, I think is tied in with all of this because, because the issue of laws being broken and criminality, right. Is that it's tied in with the whole society. It's tied in with things like education. And one of the biggest problems I see in our country is that schools budgets are derived from zip codes, property tax revenue. Um, And to me, that's a massive problem because just like you said, we have areas that are, have low property values, have no real uh, probability or propositions of raising that property value. So those schools are, are not going to succeed. So I I guess I agree with you that it is um, unhelpful to just say, let's wave a magic wand and make the world daisies and rainbows. Um, But at the same time, I think there must be more than just uh, saying, you know what, people in this situation, uh, you put yourself here, you have no one else to blame but yourself. Well, okay, so let me turn that on you. And let's just do the converse. Uh, We are now six Mm -hmm. months before an election. I would argue that for the last five elections, six months before election, we've had some big controversy in criminal justice where we've had some tragedy that's been used and we've had, uh, not parades, but protests, large protests. And the protests have been pushed and and been used as as a point to try to get people to come out in larger numbers and to vote with anger uh, at the election. Um, and so I would argue that to a certain level that the opposite of what you're saying is, is true. So if a part of what you're saying is true, then a part of the opposite is true too, that this has been over-politicized and be used as an issue to get people on the opposite side of the spectrum to come out and vote for anger or vote with anger, saying that you're being mistreated and that you're being over-incarcerated and that they're not treating everybody else the same way as they're treating your your race. And that that has caused, I think that has been to a certain extent, a political rhetoric. And now you're seeing it permeate the, the people uh, because uh, at first they would use it, they would, some people would get elected and then uh, maybe the issue would go away. And the voters saw that. And so they started electing people who saw it as a real issue and who are pushing for those issues. And it's almost like creating a mob. And once you create a mob, you can't control the mob. And you can even see some of the people that 
five years ago were pushing those types of issues, saying, oh, whoa, 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 it's gone too far. And so you can see control being lost on that issue. And so to me, that's all a sign that it was a political issue to begin with that they've lost control over. But I also want to say this war on drugs is a really, really bad thing. And people say we've lost the war on drugs. I would say no, we, we can't. We can't ever give up on the war on drugs because almost all crimes arise from the drug trade. I mean, whether it's just plain theft for people trying to steal stuff to get enough money to get their next hit. Or, I mean, it's just, you don't realize, I read a book one time, it says if we give up on the war on drugs, we're giving up on, on crime because so much crime arises or feeds into the drug trade. And and I do think that we have politicians who are arguing that we have to give up on, 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 on the war on drugs and that we've lost the war on drugs. Uh, and when they say, well, we need to replace it with... Um, something else when you replace it with sending people to rehab i mean they're giving up because you can see that as an example in harris county hey if you get arrested for this drug crime you can just go to this class well people don't go to the class or and so they their case is still dismissed and so they're just giving up on those crimes and so my concern is that if you give up on the drug uh, war on drugs, you're giving up on pretty much all crime. And you can see elements of that. We're dismissing 72% of the uh, misdemeanor cases in Harris County. We're not charging as many cases. And you can see it kind of bleeding over into the felony system. I mean, is is that kind of one of the things that we're seeing? We're kind of giving up on crime. And so that's the reason why we're having a backlash with the public, because they don't, they don't feel safe. And uh, you see people being removed from office. I mean, can you imagine what a different world we'd be in if the friends on the far left had pushed their their agenda but then had an element of accountability on it? I mean, they would be so much further down the road if they had had an element of accountability and pushed the accountability. I mean, I would say that they would be probably five times closer to, do, to their goals of, of possibly getting rid of the bell industry. But they decided to get rid of accountability, and now I think it's going to backlash. And we could have more people in jail as a result of the policies that push instead of less because of the backlash, and that would be sad. Yeah, good points. The protests were used to generate angry votes uh, for Republicans and Democrats, right? You know, the CNN was saying look at these unfair circumstances. Fox News was saying, look at these violent rioters. And both were right in, in some, some aspects. Um, and yeah, I think in both the bail industry and then also the war on drugs, it seems to me like instead of throwing out and scrapping the whole system, maybe for the bail industry, making it less predatory perhaps. I don't know that it is predatory, but I could see how it could be. And then also with policing drug possession, maybe just more common sense policies on drug possession, right? So uh, I know most cities at least have decriminalized marijuana possession. But for example, like I, I'm curious to hear in Texas, outside of cities, are people being arrested for for marijuana possession? Or has that kind of been not a top priority. Okay. Uh, it is very inconsistent. So you can go to a big city and you will not be prosecuted. You can go to the very next county and you will be prosecuted. And so I, 
I do have a criticism there of the of our elected officials. I think when when we do that, those types of things, we're undermining the credibility or the legitimacy of the courts, because the public doesn't understand. Well, why am I being prosecuted in this county, but in this other county, I would not be prosecuted. And so when we have cities across the country that are saying, I'm no longer going to enforce these crimes, what they're doing is they're they're acting as the legislature. I mean, I think we need to go to the legislature and we need to say, hey, here's the crimes that we should decriminalize. But the problem, we're not doing that. And, and this, we have friends on both sides of the spectrum that are saying, it's not, we don't have the vote, so let's just do it unilaterally. Well, that hurts that hurts the courts. That hurts their legitimacy. And then, you know, we have this, we're in the middle of this time where we have this bully mentality going on on one side of the spectrum. You will do what I want you to do, or I will call for your uh, people to not go shop at your store, or I'm going to call for you to be um, fired. Uh, And so we have this mentality right now where you're going to toe the line. Or we're going to attack you personally, and you can see that in the uh, after the leak of the U.S. Supreme Court of their opinion. You have people. I mean, you have people being protested at their homes when that's a crime, and people not being prosecuted for it. And that was all done for the attempt to influence the end result and the end uh, of the opinion that was released. And I don't think it worked because I think I've seen a comparison of the leaked opinion versus what was initial, uh, what was ultimately issued, and there was stuff added to it. But I don't think there was very much, if any, taken out. Yeah, it's more, it's more extreme. But the problem is, where did where when did we become a country where we try to influence people through intimidation like that? I mean, it's almost like we've given up on being able to argue with somebody and convince them they're wrong, and we've gone to I have to intimidate you, and and I don't think we realize how unhealthy that is for a society. We're teaching one side of the spectrum that a proper response to an argument is you're racist, you're stupid, I don't have I, I, you're a different identity than I am, so I don't even have to give a response to you. Well, that teaches people that they never have to learn how to respond to a specific argument. And that's what we have right now in our country. Uh, one side of the spectrum will not respond to any argument that they disagree with on certain issues. And I think bail reform, criminal justice reform is one of them. If you say anything, you're a racist that they disagree with and that you are in favor of more black people being held in jail. No, I'm in favor of public safety. I'm in favor of accountability. I am absolutely in favor of second chances, but I'm not in favor of, of 17 chances in Harris County. Somebody's currently out on 17 bonds. I'm not in favor of 10 chances. I'm not in favor of, of five chances. But between two and five, I can, I, I'm open to debate. But the problem is our friends on one side of the spectrum are not. They want as many chances as well, they want to decriminalize that crime, so they don't want that to be a crime. Yeah, I agree with you that um, cancel culture is not helpful, and it dilutes our critical thinking skills. Uh, uh, but doesn't it also not- cause people to stand up at some point and rebel? Isn't that what we're seeing right now? I, w- I would argue that Harry Reid is the cause of the most recent uh, opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court because he got rid of the 60-vote uh, margin for judicial uh, nominees and then the Republicans showed him what they could do with it. And if he had not gotten rid of that, we wouldn't have 
three or four justices on the Supreme Court that are currently there, but he got rid of it. And so thank you, Harry Reid, for doing it because Roe versus Wade being gone is a direct result of, of what you did. Thank you. I mean, yeah, if uh, if Mitch McConnell had heard Merrick, uh, Merrick, Merrick Garland's hearing, it'd be one more. But uh, yeah, and then they, of course, passed Trump's and his last year of his term. But I agree, that's a good point um, on the on the sixty vote margin. But yeah, Ken, I think thank you for for the conversation, and I think ultimately what we're doing is just having a healthy dialogue, which is what we need so much more of. Absolutely, <laughs> that's what our country needs. You know, is just to talk about ideas and and let people think about it, and you know, may the best ideas win. Yes, and uh, we just have to be, I mean, we have to get away from these talking points. We, we're dangerous as a society. We go from crisis to crisis using talking points to push the uninformed or the uh, the middle of the country to one extreme or the other. We are now in a time of electing extremes. Uh, and so the first year of a, uh, of a presidential term is spent undoing everything that the last president did. And we've got to get away from that. And the way we get away from that is by making incremental changes, which are what we used to do. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Likewise. Yeah, it was a great, a great conversation. Uh, a few more thoughts I just had, too. It seems like, you know, especially in Texas, the pro-state um, ideas like have a referendum on things like uh, marijuana cannabis possession, um, you know. And, and also, um, the, yeah, the, another idea, this isn't a big idea, but just getting, uh, PAC money, political action committee money out of elections and, um, election reform in that sense of maybe limiting, um, how much money any one group or association of individuals can put into running an election. Because at that point, the election's less of a, a fundraising race, and maybe it's more about ideas. Well, you know, Texas uh, is a unique state because Texas has always been a conservative state, even when it was a Democrat-run state. It was run by Democrat conservatives. The problem we have is there's no room anymore uh, in the Democrat Party for conservatives. In fact, if you were to say you were conservative uh, Democrat and you would go to their national convention, they might hang you in effigy. But the pro- so the problem, is, so it's still the same today. A conservative Democrat could win taxes, but the problem is the money. To raise the money needed to run a statewide race, you have to raise it from the people who are not going to support conservative ideas. So you have to come out saying progressive ideas to raise the money so that you can have a statewide race. But the problem is once you do that, and uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, the Democrat candidate for uh, for governor has done that. You kill your chances of running uh, a conservative campaign in Texas. So you have the money, but you no longer have the support of the, of the public. And I don't think that's changing anytime soon. With Beto O'Rourke, um, he's currently down eight is by the most recent poll. I think it's probably worse than that. A normal race uh, in Texas is going to uh, be the governor or the Republicans going to win by 10. 
and so I expect that to be a larger number this year because of the uh, all the other issues uh, with inflation and recession and crime, and with Beto O'Rourke coming out and saying we're going to take your guns. That may be different with Uvalde, uh, with, but I don't think so, not in Texas. I mean, if you think about it, with all the things that happened and the police did not go in when they went in, I mean, isn't there a natural reaction to say, if the police can't save me, would you please at least give me the ability to protect myself? And isn't that what we're saying when we're taking away my guns? The, the police aren't going to save you. They can't save you. And now we're taking away your ability to save yourself. That doesn't make sense. And Texans are not going to agree with that. Yeah. Um before we jump to Ken, you are a podcast host. So the last last line, uh, what is your what is your podcast? Our organization, the Professional Bondsman of Texas, has a podcast called The Bell Post. You it's, you can go to see it at thebellpost.com. We have uh, uh, episodes about what bondsmen do. We talked about to judges about how to set bail. We talked to the sheriff of Tarrant County, who has the third largest jail in the county, talking about how mental illness is a, uh, is a substantial problem in our, in our jails. And you can also see it on the pbtx.com website. There's a link to it on their menu. Thanks, Ken. Have a great day. Appreciate it. Hey, everybody. It's Thomas. Thank you for checking out this, the 63rd episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast. It was an interesting conversation with Ken, and thank you, Ken, for coming on the show. I do like his convictions and how articulate and thoughtful he was with his answers and his reasonings behind his beliefs and the way he conducts his business. There are a few things I thought of after the conversation that I think were are good for discussion. Um, the first one would be around the the magistration issue and the lack of resources to magistrate, again, as a refresher to process individuals uh, between their arrest and then their sentencing or release. So to me, it's actually an interesting problem that, or situation that um, in Ken's line of thinking, you know, the, the government, the system is overwhelmed with all these individuals and as he said, with a rising population, crime rates increase. Um, so my thought around that is that with a rising population, doesn't that also equate to a rising tax revenue? I mean, we pay taxes, right? We pay into these resources. So I don't necessarily understand why, especially in a pro, um, especially in a state like Texas where the government is held uh, accountable and there's a, a, a healthy skepticism of government, why is it that they're just given a pass and we just accept that the system's overwhelmed? What about the system can change to meet the rising uh, demand, if you will, the rising need in the market, uh, to use a, a business analogy uh, for these services of, of this magistration? So I don't quite understand why it's just to accept that and not raise the cap, as I suggested, or raise the volume of magistrates themselves. Although Ken did say he didn't, it shouldn't be a noun. Um, the second line of thinking that he shared that I, I can't quite get behind is around this failing family and fatherless kids narrative in cities. Um, to me, saying things like schools have failed, families have failed, uh, their families with no fathers, 
this to me leaves the realm of constructive discussion and becomes uh, a little too moralistic for me to get behind. And by moralistic, I mean um, holier than thou kind of attitude that's being communicated um, is what I really pick up on when, when that kind of talk gets regurgitated. Um, and, to, and to specify in that, you know, I know a lot of single parents. I don't know a lot personally, but I know single parents and I, I know of single families who work exceptionally hard and do exceptionally well to raise awesome kids. And I know children of single parents who are incredible people and some of the best people I know. And so on the other hand, I also know families that appear picture perfect on the surface, but are actually riddled with uh, distrust or unspoken trauma or resentment or a lack of love. So what I'm saying is that just because there's a fatherless family, for example, it's not a constructive point to bring up in the sense that um, it feels a little bit judgmental and saying that just because they are in this scenario, they must be correlated to bad, whatever that morality bad is. And it also kind of, you know, to put it in Christian terms, you know, let the person without sin cast the first stone, right? So to use that argument of families are failing in the city, to me is one a bit too on a high horse because, you know, to be able to say that, you know, you must you must have a great family, right? To be able to say that with such confidence. Um, and you, you know, anyone saying that must really invest a lot of time and energy into bringing their best selves to their family, uh, giving their kids and their partners space to be who they are. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just a little bit, uh, too much of a self-congratulatory perspective to take for me. Um, and also it casts a, a gross generalization, right? Because within these communities, right, these areas, um, that don't have a lot of money, you know, it's not just one faceless mass, right? Each community is made up of thousands of individual stories, individual decisions, individual fragmented narratives. And so I think painting with a broad brush is not really helpful. Um, and also I think, I mean, you know, I do appreciate that Ken kind of um, was steadfast in his assertion that there is no racial disparities or systemic racism in the criminal justice system. You know, I think that it's good that he articulated that because there are a lot of people who believe that who are afraid to say it. So I think it's important that we hear other perspectives. And just a few things he said that kind of struck me as ironic uh, would be talking about, you know, um, the idea that, okay, a lot of criminals are being released and people don't feel safe. And if you don't feel safe, then you're going to act. If you don't feel safe, something is wrong, meaning that the public doesn't feel safe because of criminals being released um, and using that language. And so to me, it was ironic because, you know, if someone who's been listening, right, to the narrative of the last couple of years and since the duration of American history would know that black people in this country generally don't feel safe around the police in criminal justice system. So it kind of struck me as ironic. And then also tying into this narrative of systemic racism, he did say a line about, you know, when do we become a country where we intimidate people to get what we want from them uh, in regards to the kind of woke mob. And I also found that ironic because again, with the history of 
let's say, uh, disenfranchisement and voter intimidation of black people in the past and today, that is a rife example. I mean, as a country, that does happen here, and we kind of are a country where that happens. Not everyone, of course, not every jurisdiction, not every election, but to me, those lines um, kind of struck an incongruence as someone who listens to people, you know, claiming and saying that there are problems, systemic problems in our in our community in our country. Uh, those those individual choices of words were kind of interesting. So just wanted to highlight those. Um, other things I agree with Ken about, I do agree that the woke mob of if you don't agree with me, I don't have to engage with you in a discussion is unhelpful. Um, and so I also really value him raising that point, and it's something I agree with him whole, wholeheartedly on. Uh, at the same time, I would say that for people who dismiss or don't want to or don't agree that there is a systemic um, racism, you know, racism with a broad definition. Okay. If you don't want to use the word racist or racism, you could say uh, systemic prejudice or systemic disenfranchisement or systemic um, disadvantages. So I would say if you're not willing to engage with those ideas, then by the same token, have the conversation um, and maybe I'm not the best person to have the conversation with, but uh, as far as pointing to those uh, data and those lived experiences that indicate there is a systemic um, inequality, but I think have that conversation too because there are enough people who are moving towards that mindset that it, it merits an examination. So those are my thoughts for this week, folks. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll catch you next Thursday on the Bro Nouveau Podcast. Podcast.